the scriptures use the term that is translated fellowship, it is used as a noun, not as a verb as we normally do. Fellowship in the New Testament is what we are, not what we do. It comes from the Greek word koinonia, and uh, it's rather interesting because if you check the major dictionaries around the world, you'll find it listed firstly, the word fellowship listed firstly, as a noun. In fact, many of the English dictionaries don't even list it as a verb. But we're very thankful for Merriam-Webster because Noah Webster did list it as a verb. Secondly, so this afternoon, I would like to look at us as a fellowship, as a noun, what we as a fellowship should be doing. You could like a title. I would classify this or I'd entitle this a godly fellowship at work. A godly fellowship at work. If we start with the New Testament, which is really where I want to focus my attention today, if we take the Gospel of Matthew, and especially Matthew's rendition of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew was inspired to highlight the need for godly righteousness. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Luke, in his gospel, shows that righteousness in action. One is talking about the need, the other shows it in action. If you consider Luke's gospel for a moment, you might think of some of the great parables and events that occur in Luke's gospel that are unique to Luke's rendition of Christ's teaching in life. The Good Samaritan shows righteousness in action. The realization of who really is my neighbor. What it means to have a neighbor. There's a parable of a prodigal son. And the associated events set out there. There is a real life occasion rather than a parable where Zacchaeus comes to see Jesus. And in an act of repentance and contrition for his past, undertook to provide so much of his goods for the poor and those he had wronged. Luke's view of righteousness and of, you might say by extension, a fellowship of righteousness in action is not just contained within his gospel. What Luke shows in his gospel carries on throughout the book of Acts, also written by Luke. When Luke's gospel was first written and uh, canonized as part of a New Testament, John's gospel had not been written. John's epistles had not probably been written at that point. The book of Revelation had not been written. And so a church member at that point reading the New Testament would have read Luke chapter 24 
and gone straight on into the book of Acts, almost as a continuous theme. So the foci that Luke provides in his gospel are developed and continued throughout the book of Acts as well. Luke provided continuous treatment of this fellowship, a fellowship of God from the birth of John the Baptist through to Paul preaching in Rome. His purpose has very much to show the fellowship of God's church at work. What do we do? How do we do it as a fellowship? So how does Luke then see this fellowship in action? How does he see godly righteousness in action? For a starter, Luke does not see righteousness occurring by itself. Self-righteousness, yes, but godly righteousness, no. It is not something that we can put on, we can generate, of and by ourselves, by our own strength. Luke sees two essential ingredients to righteousness. The first one is God's Holy Spirit. We've just celebrated the day of Pentecost, the portrays and remembers, you might say, the giving of God's Holy Spirit just a few weeks back. The second element that Luke sees as being essential to righteousness is very closely associated with that, and it is the subject of prayer. To this latter subject of righteousness that I would like to focus our attention as a godly fellowship today. Dr. Meredith, Mr. Ames, others have both written and spoken frequently on the subject. But allow me to provide you something with a Lucan perspective on the subject of prayer today. Godly prayer of itself is an act of godly righteousness. Matthew makes that abundantly clear in Matthew chapter 6. Just as self-focused prayer can be an act of self-righteousness. You can look at Matthew chapter 6 and verses 1 through 5. Matthew goes through a number of, is inspired to record a number of areas in which righteousness is to be evident in our lives. Verse 5 tells us when you pray, This is part of the godly righteousness that is required of us so that we can enter the kingdom of God. Prayer and charitable deeds was understood by the Jews of that day and of today as being an act of righteousness. They understand it. You might say these are the pillars of Judaism, prayer and righteous deeds as they see it. Jesus Christ saw those as being acts of righteousness as well. But he said, it's got to be better than the scribes and the Pharisees. Jesus was, you might say, dramatically ratcheting up the requirements in terms of prayer above that of the scribes and Pharisees of his days. So we have this situation. Let's have a look at this in terms of Luke and his gospel. 
Luke deals with aspects of prayer in a profound way. If you want to find out about prayer within the New Testament, I can recommend two books for you to read, the book of Luke and the book of Acts. Because prayer in any of its forms is mentioned much more frequently in Luke's writing than anyone else's. In fact, you'll find in the book of Luke and the book of Acts, there are some 58 references to prayer, either as pray, pray, prayer, praying, etc. So it's a major focus of Luke's gospel and writings. In the Greek language, several words were used and have been translated into English as pray or prayer. The different Greek words convey various elements of what our Father means by prayer. Luke, in fact, starts his gospel with prayer. And in so doing, he provides a vignette for us to appreciate and understand the importance that he's going to place upon these subjects, upon the subject of prayer. Obviously, in chapter 1, he gives an introductory salutation. I'd like you to turn to chapter 1, and let's pick it up in verse 5, where Luke starts giving an account of the life of Jesus and the birth of John the Baptist beforehand. Luke chapter 1 and verse 5, he sets the time scene. In the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias of a division of Abijah. His wife was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. They were both righteous before God. So Luke very clearly establishes the credentials of these people, how they were perceived by our Heavenly Father. They were, you might say, part of God's righteous fellowship. Verse 6 carries on telling us the way in which they were righteous and why they were perceived as being righteous before our Heavenly Father, because they walked in the commandments and ordinances of the Lord blameless. Do we want a commendation? Here's an incredible commendation to be given by our Father about us. People who clearly would have their name written in the book of life. Verse 7 tells us a little bit about this couple. They had no child because Elizabeth was barren and they were both well advanced in years. And so it was in verse 8 that when he was serving as priest before God in the order of his division, according to the custom of a priesthood, his lot fell to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. Zacharias was part of the rotation of the priests that have been set up by David, and you can find those uh, orders of a priesthood in First Chronicles, the latter chapters of First Chronicles. The priests, from what we understand, served on a one-week rotation. There were 24 orders, so that meant they served twice per annum. And in addition to that, all of the priests served during the Days of Unleavened Bread and the Passover time and at the Feast of Tabernacles time. So basically, a priest was in Jerusalem 
serving in the temple four weeks out of a year. It was one of those occasions when Luke chapter 1 occurs. The priests drew lots to see who would take the incense into the holy place each morning to trim the lamps and then in the evening. And it was at this point in time that Zacharias was chosen to burn the incense and trim the candles in the holy place. We understand that the evening another lot would be drawn. And once a priest had served, his lot would be removed from the hat, so to speak, so that he didn't end up doing it more times than he should have done. So the occasions when a priest like Zacharias would go into the holy place were highly restricted. He basically served in the temple four weeks of the year. And so he would probably expect to have one occasion to go in and to trim the lamps and burn incense. So a very unique experience for them to do. So having set up the scenario of Zacharias, Luke then turns his attention to what else is happening in the temple. We find in verse 10 that the multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. Luke makes a big thing of this, even in the book of Acts, about the hour of prayer. It was a time when the priests went into the sanctuary, into the holy place, to burn incense, and the people would come, or the devout people would come and pray at that point in time. Here were devout people who worshipped God, the ones who were later going to be influenced on the day of Pentecost, possibly if they were still alive, by the preaching of the apostles. They were at the temple of the hour of prayer, praying while the priests went in to offer incense before the eternal and to trim the candles. Luke is setting up for us a view of a godly fellowship who were devoted to godly service. It's an interesting point to consider because it's so easy for us to think of all the people in Jerusalem being hellions. Certainly there were a fair share of disreputable people who were interested in power and corruption and so forth in Jerusalem at that point. But Luke also wants us to realize there were people there who were devout, who were devoted to the service of God. And that is where his focus falls in this first chapter. And so we find uh, Luke introduces us to this aspect of prayer, these people being in the temple, praying. Using the temple in the way in which Christ said it should have been. It was supposed to be in a house of prayer for all nations. They were doing, they were using the temple the way the Father intended it to be. Now, of course, we can compare what we've just read here with Acts chapter 2, which would have been read undoubtedly on the day of Pentecost. It talks in verse 5 of Acts chapter 2 about there being devout men dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And of course, we find in verse 11 of chapter 2 that these people, these devout people, 
heard the apostle speaking in our own tongue the wonderful works of God. Now, of course, chapter 2 makes it abundantly clear there were people there ridiculing the apostles. On the other hand, there were those whose minds were being worked with by our Heavenly Father who recognized what they heard and responded to it. They had an identity, a spiritual identity, and they could identify with what the apostles were speaking at that point in time. It struck a bell. They were on the same page, so to speak. They understood. And the consequence was that that day 3,000 people were baptized and added to the church. Incredible point to consider. So if we go back to Luke chapter 1, we find that here is Zacharias in the temple, a very auspicious occasion for Zacharias. The people are there praying. Zacharias goes into the holy place. In verse 11 it said, an angel of the eternal appeared, or the angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing on the right side of the altar of incense. So here we are in the, in the uh, holy place with the altar sort of mid-center, the menorah on the uh, one side, the table of showbread on the other side, and right to the right of the altar is an angelic being. Zacharias saw him. He was troubled and fear fell upon him. The angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your prayer is heard. And your wife, Elizabeth, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. We're at verse 13. We have mentioned prayer twice in the first 13 verses. As in my ministry, I've had various people who have been in the same circumstance as Zacharias and Elizabeth, come to me to be asked to be anointed so that they could have children. In some cases, things never changed. In other cases, they've come back to talk to me a few weeks later, and you can tell by the look on their face, something's changed dramatically. They've had children being greatly blessed. But I don't think we necessarily appreciate in our society today with its ambivalence, ambivalence towards families and people having children and so forth just how important this aspect was to Zacharias and Elizabeth. Let me explain it to you from a different perspective. First time I went to Nigeria in 1977, I met a young couple, recently married. I got to know them reasonably well over the years. On one occasion, Mr. Jackson told me, he said, uh, they can't have children. And her family is advocating to her husband that they send their daughter home again annul the marriage, and take a wife who will produce children for him. 
Her family saw it as a mark of failure for their daughter not to produce children. It was a stigma. So Mr. Jackson made some suggestions to them that they take some tests. And of course, you know, God has a sense of humor, doesn't he? Because where was the problem? Not with the wife. The problem was with the husband. Okay, so he marries another wife and he still has a problem. It's always going to be the wife's problem. And so Mr. Jackson anointed him and God blessed them with one daughter. Just one. But immediately it validated their marriage. They were whole as far as that society was concerned. Now, of course, there's another side to the story as well because Mr. Jackson at that point in time was about 70 years of age. He had grandchildren of his own. And he remarried. His first wife had died, I think, what, 1967, thereabouts, about the same time as Mrs. Loma Armstrong died. So his first wife died. And here in the late 1970s, he remarried uh, another lady who herself was a grandmother. And he took his bride back to Lagos in Nigeria. And the first question people asked him was, when are you going to have a family? So different societies have different takes on childlessness. Not all societies can be as ambivalent about it as ours is. Of course, I know that's not necessarily an attitude within the church. But our society at large can have great levels of ambivalence towards children. Children are seen as being... A disruption to the lifestyle. Zacharias and Elizabeth lived in a society more akin to that of West Africa rather than North America. As a result of that, what were their prayers like? As I said earlier on, Luke uses several Greek words to focus on the aspect of prayer. In these two occasions in chapter 1, he's used two separate words. And the word he uses in verse 13 is the word I want you to focus on, I want to focus on this afternoon. Because the word that is used here is the Greek word diomai. And it has a related word, desis. And if you look it up in a lexicon, some lexicons listed under diomai and some lexicons listed under desis. But they are an interesting pair of words. Diomai is a word that's used here of the prayers of Zacharias and Elizabeth. Now, interestingly, this word is only used once in Matthew's gospel. We'll touch upon that in due, due course. And other than Luke and Paul, it's only used by Peter and James one time each. So you might say this is a word that's very focused upon by Luke and by Paul. And, of course, that's not surprising, seeing that Luke was a fellow uh, a contemporary uh, traveling companion of Paul. And so, obviously, it was a lot of time they spent considering some of these things. 
The intent and meaning of the word diomai or desis relates to beseeching and praying with intensity. And so we find it's oftentimes used in more modern translations of oftentimes translated by more of a modern translation as implore or beg. In the New King James, the word is normally translated as supplications. And so the aspect of DMI is to ask with urgency with the implication of presumed need to plead, to beg, So the original meaning of both diomai and desis in Greek is based on the lack of something or a need for something. So this aspect of the recognition of a need is very much part of Luke's usage of this word. So as a result of this, they can be used in reference to prayer, Prayers that are used in terms of urgency, of intensity. One lexicon states, this word has an implication of a presumed need. There is a need because I lack something. We find that Luke uses these words in particular ways. This afternoon, I'd like to focus upon three ways in which Luke and, of course, Paul use this word. It's interesting, as I mentioned a little moment ago, to be aware of the way both translators have chosen to convey the sense of urgency inherent in this word. The first area I'd like to look at is that of health, both physical and spiritual health. We have a need, great need. One of the first occasions outside of chapter 1 where Luke uses the term is in Luke chapter 5. I'd like you to turn there and we'll go to verse 12. Jesus was preaching in Galilee at this point. And we find in Luke chapter 5 and verse 12 it happened that he was in a certain city But behold, a man that was full of leprosy saw Jesus, and he fell on his face and implored him. Diomai is the Greek word that is translated implored. He implored him, saying, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. It's very easy to read over an account like that. Part of the difficulty is that most of us have had little of any association with the person suffering from leprosy. If it was the same disease we understand today. We have no idea of the mental anguish of this particular man. Today we, we put a person in a room to isolate them. And of course... What happens in the air conditioning system is seldom considered. In this day, a person was isolated by being put outside of the normal orbit of human beings. 
Just as in Israel they had to be put outside of a camp, so in the cities of Judea and Galilee, people with diseases like this were put outside. They were not able to have normal human contact. They did not necessarily have a home to go to. And so, you might say, they were avoided by people. Someone who had leprosy was outside the camp. He wasn't able to have contact with people. Leprosy was considered to be a contagious disease right up until the 20th century. And of course, if this was leprosy as we understand it in the 20th century and 21st century, it was a horrid disease because it was a wasting disease. You saw your body literally decaying before your eyes. This man had a need, a great need of wholeness. I've seen people dying of tuberculosis in Kenya. It's tragic. Women in Maine who have ended up becoming HIV positive because of their husband's philandering And here they are lying on a mat on the floor, literally skin and bones. Everything has wasted away from them. The only thing they have left is a bit of breath. It's very, very sad to see, to see a person in a situation like that, their life being taken from them. That man saw himself in a similar situation. Wasting away to death. A very sad way. If any of you have ever been shunned in some way, you realize the sense of loss that comes as a result of being shunned by others. Not being able to associate with them. So we can understand in part why this man would come and Look to Jesus in the way he did. He was praying for healing with the same sense of intensity that Zacharias and Elizabeth had been praying for a child. Of course, we could look at other aspects here and how long it took. Zacharias and Elizabeth were healed so they could have children or More specifically, Elizabeth was healed so that you could have a child at the time which was appropriate to our father's purpose. This man was healed at this particular time. So this man had a sense of urgency about him because he probably saw his life ebbing away in front of him with the leprosy eating away at his limbs and probably various vital organs as well. Not a nice disease to consider. This man pleaded with Jesus. He deomied Jesus, if I might brutalize the or anglicize the Greek. Let's have a look at another example. After Jesus had explained the parable of the sower to the disciples, he crossed the Sea of Galilee, where the wind and waves obeyed him. 
They came to the opposite side of a lake. Luke chapter 8 and verse 26. He came to the country of the Gadarenes, which is opposite Galilee. And when he stepped out of it onto the land, verse 27, there met him a certain man from a city who had demons for a long time. And he wore no clothes, nor did he live in a house, but in the tombs. Once again, an outcast. When he saw Jesus, he cried out, fell down before him, and with a loud voice said, What have I to do with you, Jesus, Son of God, the Most High God? I beg, dear my, you, do not torment me. Now, it's interesting to consider who was really speaking on this occasion. Because we find if we read through the rest of the verses of this particular account, we find the demons begging in verse 32. Luke doesn't use the term diamai in terms of a request of the demons. He uses a different Greek word altogether, unrelated Greek word. This man had a spiritual problem. Jesus Christ was able to intervene and deal with it. We find if we come down to the end of the account, we find he comes down to verse 37. Jesus Christ got in the boat and returned. Verse 38, the man from whom the devil, demons were, had departed begged once again, Diomai, him, that he might be with him. Quite understandable, isn't it? This man's life has been transformed, radically transformed, from being demon-possessed to having a whole mind. What else would you want to do rather than to spend the time with the person who had provided that healing? And so he begged him that he might be with him. It's hard to understand a person who has had his, their life lived a demon-possessed. It's one of those areas in my ministry I've not really had much occasion to have contact which in many ways I'm very grateful, very grateful. It is interesting at times people who have various mental conditions can be aware of the situation they find themselves in. They may have no responsibility for their actions, but they are aware of the circumstances they find themselves in. Jesus Christ told them, no, you're not coming with me. Verse 38, he sent him away, saying, Return to your own house and tell what great things God has done for you. In other words, he told the man, You keep your mind on what has happened to you to protect yourself from the demons again in in the future. This man prayed with intensity. He implored Jesus to allow him to be a disciple. There's another case for you to consider in Luke chapter 9, the next chapter. 
Luke chapter 9 and verse 38. A man from a multitude cried out saying, Teacher, I implore you, look on my son, for he is my only child. So here we are back in a similar situation to Zacharias and Elizabeth. A man with only one child, and that child is sick. The man fears losing that child. He said, Behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out and convulses him, so that he foams at the mouth, and it departs from him with great difficulty, bruising him. So I implored your disciples to cast it out, but they couldn't. He was a man realized, I can't do this. I can't solve this problem by myself. Somebody greater than me has to be involved in doing this for me. So he implored, he deemed the disciples. They couldn't do it. Then he turned to Jesus and he asked. He implored Jesus. Once again, the same word that's used of Zacharias and Elizabeth about their prayers. He implored them. Physical or spiritual health. Great example in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 8. When persecution had set in Jerusalem and the disciples were scattered. Philip, of course, going down to Samaria. Preaching the good news of the kingdom of God. Among those who responded to Philip's teaching was Simon the sorcerer. John and Peter, Peter and John, were sent down from uh, Jerusalem to lay hands on these people in Samaria. And so in verse 14 of Acts chapter 8, we find, When the apostles were at Jerusalem, heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them, who when they came down prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For as yet the Holy Spirit had not been given to them. Uh, They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. When they laid hands upon them, they received the Holy Spirit. And so Simon is then reintroduced to us again in verse 18. When Simon saw that the laying on of the apostles' hands, the Holy Spirit was given, he offered them money. Simony, the buying of a religious office. He said in verse 19, Give me this power also that anyone on whom I lay hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Peter responded to that in an appropriate manner. Peter said to him, Your money perish with you because you thought the gift of God could be purchased with money. You You have neither part nor lot with us in this matter. For your heart is not right in the sight of God. Verse 22. Repent therefore of this your wickedness and pray. Dear my. In other words, pray with a great level of intensity. Pray God if perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven you. Peter's basically telling Simon, you've really got to get down and search for what it is you need, a change of heart. You've got to come to understand what your need is, Simon. 
because you don't understand the things of God. It's not just a casual thing. It is something that has to be sought. It is something that we have to see as being a lack in our lives. And that is true for each and every one of us as we come to the point of repentance. We have to realize there is a need in our life. Something that we have to implore our Father for. Our prayer needs to be driven by the understanding of what we lack and the understanding of what we need. We need repentance. Repentance without that understanding of a need and lack in our life does not really amount to repentance. The Apostle Peter told Simon, if you want to be part of us, you've got to get on your knees and really implore the eternal to get rid of this wretched heart that you have. Now, it's interesting because Simon responded. What does he say in response? Peter said in verse 23, I see you're poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity. Then Simon answered and said, pray to the eternal for me. Do you know what the word pray is? Dear my, you do it for me. This man had no concept of repentance whatsoever. Is that what God's looking for? I might be intense in my prayers for someone's repentance. But ultimately speaking, that person themselves have to become intense in their understanding of what they lack and what they need from our Heavenly Father. And without that, they will never have repentance. So Peter saw Simon as being totally given over to his way of life. We have an interesting situation here. Very interesting situation with Simon Magus. Has no understanding of repentance. But interestingly, in that same chapter, Acts chapter 8, Luke sets the account of Simon Magus off with someone who truly sought repentance. The Ethiopian eunuch. A few verses later, after leaving Samaria, Philip is led to an encounter with the Ethiopian eunuch. Look at the difference in this man's attitude towards the word of God. Look at it. Simon just wanted to be able to control people. He wanted to have power over people. There's no aspect of service. There's no aspect of serving and putting ourselves under the control of our Heavenly Father. He just wanted to exercise control himself. So he had no idea of his need. This man understood his need. He understood he lacked something that somebody else could provide to him. And so in verse 26, the angel of the Lord spoke to Philip saying, Arise and go toward the south along the road that goes from Jerusalem to Gaza. Desert. 
not a hospitable environment to be in. And as he arose and went, behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of uh, great authority under Candice, the queen of the Ethiopians, who had charge of all, all of the treasury, had come to Jerusalem to worship. He was returning, riding in his chariot. He was reading Isaiah the prophet. The spirit said to Philip, go near and overtake his chariot. He must have been some sprinter. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading the prophet Isaiah and said, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he asked Philip to come up and sit with him. The place in the scripture where he was reading, Isaiah chapter 53, was about Jesus Christ. And so uh, verse 52 and 53 records the account from Isaiah. In verse 54, the eunuch answered Philip and said, I ask you, of whom does the prophet say this, of himself or some other man? Now, it's all very nice, isn't it? It's all very sweet and lovely. The only problem is, this is one occasion where the translators really fluffed. Because just asking was not what the Ethiopian eunuch was inquiring about. The Greek word there is diomai. He implored him. Explain it to me. This man realized he didn't understand. And he wanted to understand. He desired to understand it. So we lose the intensity of what the Ethiopian eunuch is asking, Philip, because it's simply, he asked him, who is he talking about? Be better, I pray you, please, explain it to me. Tell me, explain this. I want to understand it. I want to have a grasp of this. I want to relate to these words. I want them to be part of my life. So the Ethiopian eunuch was literally imploring Philip to explain the scriptures to him, making supplication to him so that he could have understanding. Why? Because he saw he had a need. He lacked understanding and he wanted understanding. And here was a person who had an intensity of desiring to have that understanding. So he, Luke uses that term, diomai there. To put this in a context for you, this would be like the chairwoman of the Federal Reserve, Janet Yelton, Yellen, driving around somewhere in a, in a limousine with a book of the Bible, wanting to understand it. This was a statue of this individual. He was a very important person in the land, a man of considerable mental acuity and acumen. But he was a man who realized he had a need and he was desirous to have that need met and filled so that he could have the understanding of God's word. And he wanted it. He realized he needed to know, so he implored. Turn over a couple of 
chapters in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 10, and we reach Cornelius chapter 10 verse 1. There was a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian regiment. I actually prefer the uh, King James version of the Italian band. Sounds a little more colorful, doesn't it? But it was the Italian regiment. A devout man and one who feared God with all his household, who gave alms generously to the people, and he prayed to God always. What did a centurion need in terms of physical commodities? Precious little. If he lacked something, he could extort it out of the local populace. No problem, he had power. He could extort whatever he wished. He had the power to do so, but yet this man saw a need in his life. And where it says he prayed to God always, the word once again is diamai. He saw a need in his life. And he was constant in his desire to have that need met, to have that need fulfilled. He realized there was a lack. He realized he needed something. And for all of his position, he was going to seek it and find it. He couldn't get it by uh, extortion or graft or any of those other ways. And so this attitude of realizing a lack of a need or a need becomes a foundational aspect of repentance, of realizing something is missing from my life. I'm not complete the way I am. And it has to have an intense desire to have that met. So in terms of spiritual health, this aspect of prayer is very important. This aspect of urgently beseeching, praying with a sense of intensity, imploring, begging the Eternal, the Father, to help us understand our part within His plan is part and parcel of our calling. In terms of our spiritual health, it's essential. Let's go back to Luke's gospel and just appreciate what Jesus Christ said about it. In terms of personal spiritual care, the maintenance of our spiritual lives after we've repented, this continues to be required of us. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 33 We find that the scribes and the Pharisees came to Jesus and said, well, why do the disciples of John fast and make prayers and likewise those of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink? How come? We've got two standards of righteousness operating here. He said to them, can can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them. Then they will fast in those days. Now the the scribes and Pharisees ask a question about the disciples of John. The disciples of John fast often and make prayers. They deomai. 
they are intense prayers. Why? Because they have a lack. Their leader is imprisoned. How does their work get done when the leader is imprisoned? They have a need. They have a need for John the Baptist to be restored to them. They prayed with great intensity. They were not giving ritual prayers that had been written out by someone centuries beforehand or even years beforehand and reiterated daily. He's not talking about them reciting even the Psalms. He's talking about the, 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 the disciples praying with intensity based on their need. John was in prison. How do we have him restored? How do we do the work that John is supposed to be doing? Jesus Christ said, while I'm with them, they won't necessarily do it. But the time is coming when in realizing their lack and in realizing their needs, they will have to have that level of intensity. The implication of verse 35 is that we should fast and pray or diomai just as the disciples of John did. This should be part of the work of the fellowship, of the godly fellowship. Notice one other scripture in Luke's gospel, which ties him with this very well. Luke, in Luke chapter 21, provides the Olivet Prophecy. Luke 21 and verse 34. Take heed to yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness and cares of this life. And that day come on you unexpectedly. Jesus in verse 35 said it's going to come as a snare upon all those who dwell on the face of the earth. So in verse 36 he said, watch therefore and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things will come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. The watching and praying is not a request to pray three times a day. I want to be in your kingdom or your kingdom come. I want to avoid the problems of this earth by getting into your kingdom. Many people in the past sort of came part of, became part of God's church to protect themselves, to save their skin. I'm sure that's part of a reason why so many people changed their tune so rapidly in the 19, early 1990s. Because they didn't have to see, they didn't see the need to save their skin anymore. When Jesus Christ says, watch you therefore and pray always, the word that is translated pray is diomai. If you want to be in the kingdom, you've got to do it with a level of intensity. This watching and praying can't be as one person in this room talks about sleepy time prayers. It requires that we be awake and alert and focused upon what is essential in our life and in the life of the world. It's interesting because in the 1990s, 
Some people were thinking that the kingdom of God had already come. Life was so good. They had no need for the kingdom of God anymore. The problem is, brethren, you and I live in an unreal world. The real world is out there, beyond our shores, or maybe in the hearts of some of our cities, where great poverty exists. I've understood a little bit of want in life, but not the level of want that I see every time I go to Africa. I've seen what people suffer. I just mentioned to you a little while ago about tuberculosis. Major problem in Western Kenya. I've seen church members' children who suffer from rickets with their distended bellies and bowed legs because the child has never had a proper meal in his life. I've seen their want. I see the problems that it creates for those people as well. In reality, if you look at the statistics, those people live in the real world. Very important for us to consider. I could recount for you, and I wish I had time to recount to you, some of the problems that the brethren face. In fact, we have one of our deacons in Kenya imprisoned at the present time. It really is tragic because there isn't really a way in which we can help him. The only way he can really be helped is through the eternal's intervention. It's an evil world, as you heard in the sermonette. Very evil world. And our people suffer as a consequence of it. Very, very much so. So life has no security for the majority of the people of this world. That's real. We live here in the United States in a very unreal world. It is as though we have escaped through the looking glass. And we are in another world. The rest of the world out there is in reality, facing reality and so forth. And so it's very easy for us to let the cares of this world and all of our concern cloud our view of the need for the kingdom of God. And Jesus Christ said, you avoid that by praying with intensity of coming to really understand the need for the kingdom of God. There is no solution to the problems of humanity without the kingdom of God. All humanity lacks because this world does not have the kingdom of God. It is the world of the God of this world, the spirit of darkness. So Jesus Christ said you've got to pray with intensity to make sure that your life is in harmony with the word of God so that you don't get caught up in the affairs of this world or in the carousing and drunkenness that he prefaced those comments with. Don't get caught up. So even in this aspect of our personal care, having repented 
We are still to maintain a sense of urgency, a sense of intensity in our prayer life with God, with our Father. Second aspect I'd like to talk about is the work. Luke, Acts chapter uh, uh, 2, introduces Jesus Christ being taken into the temple, introduced firstly to Simeon and then to Anna. I'd like you to come down to verse 36 because Anna is an interesting individual. Luke chapter 2, verse 36, there was one Anna, a prophetess, a daughter of Thaniel, of the tribe of Asher. She was of great age and had lived with her husband seven years from her virginity. And this woman was a widow of about 84 years who did not depart from the temple but served God with fastings and prayer. What sort of prayer? Dear my, night and day. Notice what her response to seeing Jesus Christ was. Verse 38. Coming in that instance, she gave thanks to the Lord and spoke of him to all those who looked for redemption in Israel. She saw the place of his child within the plan of God and the work that he was doing. Anna was quite a remarkable lady. Luke chapter 10. Jesus Christ appoints 70 to go out and to preach. Verse 2. He said to them, the harvest truly is great, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray. Guess what? Guess what the word is, how we're supposed to pray. We're supposed to pray with intensity. There is a need. The laborers are few. There is a great need. There is a lack of laborers. And we're told to pray with intensity that the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. How often do we pray with real intensity that God would add laborers to his harvest? Dr. Meredith has been encouraging us to include three items in our prayers. That God would give us understanding, that he would add ministers or laborers, if I might enlarge upon what he has said, and that God would give us an increase so we can afford to do the work more effectively. And he just doesn't want us, the eternal doesn't want us, to have that as sort of a checklist. Okay, I prayed for that today. Don't need to touch that again. It's something we have to pray with a level of intensity because it is a need. It is a great need in terms of the commission we're being given. You might say, why does he ask us to implore him when he could so easily call people? Because he wants us, he wants to see how much you and I are committed to his work. He wants to see how dedicated, committed we are to this work. John the Baptist told the people of his day that the Father could raise up 
children to Abraham from stones. He's got the power to do it, but that's not the way he does it. He calls you and me, and he calls you and me to realize what the needs are and respond in prayer accordingly. It's interesting, this same verse is the one occasion on which Matthew uses the term diamai. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 9. Same occasion. Acts chapter 1. We find the apostles returning to Jerusalem after the ascension of Jesus Christ. They went into an upper room where they were staying. Peter, James, and John, Andrew, Philip, and Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, the son of Eltheus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James. These all continued in a one accord in prayer and supplication. It's one of the occasions where Diomai has been translated as supplications. And of course with the woman, Mary the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. So here was a group of people in Jerusalem following the ascension of Jesus. They were waiting in Jerusalem. They realized they had to wait for the power to be given to them. They had a lack They had intensity in their prayers that God would give them the power to perform the work that he had given them to do. They are a role model for us. They prayed a prayer of of intensity based on a lack, based on a need. We find the same later on in chapter 4. Chapter 3 Peter and John rather heal the cripple at the beautiful gate of the temple. Chapter 4, they're arrested again and imprisoned and released and so forth. The event, the apostles come back together again. We find in chapter 4 and verse 31, when they had prayed, when they had diamai, The place where they are assembled together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God with boldness. They were concerned about doing the work of the eternal, of the heavenly father. Interestingly, they saw the death of Christ in his proper context here in a great way. So uh, we we could spend a lot of time looking at that example. We don't have time to do to today so we have uh, this aspect of doing the work of praying with intensity not just something routine routine the apostles understood the purpose of Christ's death within God's plan within the father's plan and they realized they had a part as a result of that They prayed with intensity. They besought the Father that he would open the doors so that they could preach the word with boldness. We find the Apostle Paul using this as well. The book of Hebrews, chapter 5 and verse 7, talks about how when Jesus was in the garden, he prayed with intensity. We understand that intensity because it said he sweated drops of blood. The word that Hebrews chapter 5 verse 7 uses to describe the prayer of Jesus in the garden is diamai again. 
The Apostle Paul spoke of this frequently in terms of a church. As a co-worker with Luke, Paul and Luke probably spoke about things at great length. We may, we find in Romans chapter 8, uh, Romans chapter 1 rather, in verse 8. He spoke to the church at Rome. He said, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. For God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son. Without that, without ceasing, I make mention of you always in my prayers, making request, DMI, once again, making request if by some means, now at least, I find a way uh, in the will of God to come to you. Why? So that they could be established in the truth. The Apostle Paul was motivated by it. And so forth. We find him speaking to the Thessalonians, to the Corinthians, to the Ephesians in the same way. So this aspect of the work, the work of the church, requires DMI. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 18. We're told in the preceding verses about putting on the armor of God. Part of the armor of God is praying. Verse 18, carrying on from there, it said, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. We heard in the announcements about prayer for individuals who need prayer, who need healing in their lives, or circumstances that they have not in control of. The Apostle Paul talks about us using supplication. Supplication, used twice in the English of verse 18, is the Greek word diamai. So twice the Apostle Paul tells us to diamai in terms of our care for one another. Because we are all part of this work. We're all part of it together in a very great way. So we have this responsibility The third part, of course, in terms of the work of the community of fellowship, godly fellowship and work, is, of course, preaching the gospel. And we'll find that we are carrying on in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 19. Part of the things they were to supplicate about or to DMI about was so that an utterance may be given to me that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel. So that the gospel can be preached in a very powerful manner. Romans chapter 10 and verse 1, you might like to make a note of. The Apostle Paul said, My heart's desire and DMI to God for Israel is that they might be saved. He was a man who was motivated by a desire to see his people saved from a wrath to come. It wasn't ho-hum in any way whatsoever was a dedication to it in a very powerful way we've talked about intensity I'm not asking that we all become intense individuals in any way whatsoever Luke uses this term that is required which connotes intensity some nine times 
out of the 58 references he has for prayer. But he makes it abundantly clear that our prayers need to be intense, based on a need and a lack, perceived lack. Dr. Meredith has talked about God's guidance, about need for more ministers, that we have an increase in income of 15% so that we can do more to proclaim the gospel. These are very important for us to consider. We have to have the sense of intensity in our life, a sense of urgency if we're going to fulfill what Jesus Christ has set as the standard for us. The fellowship of God is a group of people who are intensely concerned about the calling that God has given them about being part of God's plan and fulfilling their responsibilities within God's plan. Mr. Armstrong used to state frequently that a person's spiritual growth depends upon how much their heart is in doing the work. These three points, our spiritual health, the work, preaching the gospel, really all come together. They come together in one big point, our commitment to our Father's plan and purpose. I stop at times and consider. At times you almost feel like breaking out in a cold sweat when you see and you consider what our Father is offering to us in his kingdom. It's awesome. It is beyond the comprehension of human beings without God's Holy Spirit. We read our Father's word and we realize just how much our Father is wanting to invest in us as people, as members of his family. As a result of that, it's worthwhile getting intense about and realizing we have to be prepared for that. We've got to be totally on side for that. Our minds need to be reshaped to be like the mind of God. So when he gives us those responsibilities in the future, we can fulfill them in the way he wants us to do. Do we see that need in our life? Do we appreciate the lack of a mind of God that each of us individually might have? Do we seek to have that changed? It requires some effort on our part. We have to have a sense of intensity about one another, about the calling that each and every one of us has. And if so, we can have the right sense of intensity. Then we have a fellowship at work, a godly fellowship at work, accomplishing what our Father desires.